June 2000. A deliberately set fire engulfs the busy Childers Palace Backpackers Hostel in the rural Queensland town of Childers, Australia. 15 young backpackers are killed and 69 survivors still bear the physical and mental scars of this act of brutality today. The murderer of the 15 young people has applied for parole in 2020 after serving only 20 years for the ultimate act of barbarity. This is the story of the Childers Backpackers Hostel Fire. Primary sources for this episode include The Guardian, Queensland Parliament, The Brisbane Times, news.com.au, The Age and Seven News. Hi guys, welcome to episode 50 of Unknown Passage, a podcast that tells the stories of those who have gone missing or been murdered abroad. And yes, I am back because this is the 50th episode we are doing together and Technically, it's more than that if you count double part episodes, but I'm not. So I just wanted to say thank you so much to all of you who have supported me, um, sent me nice messages, left lovely reviews and become patrons in the last 50 episodes. I cannot believe I've done 50 episodes since I started this in May. Um, If I'd done one a week, I'd be doing that. I'd be kind of celebrating this in May next year. So I really can't believe how much you can get done when you're passionate about something. And I've just loved doing this. It's like a breath of fresh air to me. So thank you so much. And that's why you're getting um, an additional episode this week and a double parter. I am splitting this into two parts because the Childers Backpackers Hostel Fire is a case that I was familiar with from when it happened and I remember it so clearly. I've wanted to cover this case for ages. I've done the research for ages, filling in gaps I didn't know. And every time I've gone to record it, I haven't wanted to because for some reason it just it just guts me. And I'm sorry if I get upset during this episode, but if you don't know this case, I I don't think it's talked about enough. This year, they marked the 20th anniversary in June of the arson that killed 15 Australian and international backpackers who were in Childers, Queensland at the time. And there was really no coverage of it. I don't remember any of it. It was only when I searched for it that I found there was coverage. I don't remember it making any headlines and I think they deserve a lot more than that. I know that there's a new podcast out about the Childers fire. I I haven't listened to it. Um, I don't think I could listen to people talk um, in too much depth for too long, um, all the victims, because it's just heartbreaking. So this case I guess we all have those cases that we remember so well on the news. And I remember when I was young, I was 12 um, when this case happened. I was turning 13 shortly after. And my parents were news hounds. Um, I've said my dad is a journo or was a journo. So he was always really hooked into stories. And so was my mum. So when something would happen before the days of 24-hour news, I remember my parents tuning in for every news broadcast of particular stories as they were unfolding. We couldn't just go on the internet at the time and look up the current kind of how things were currently. Um, So we had to um, kind of wait for the five o'clock news, then mum would put on the six o'clock news on another channel. Now, Childers is one of them. I remember my mother watching the coverage 
as they recovered bodies. Um, it shocked Australia to the core and I don't think enough people know about this case. Another case that I remember my mother glued to for weeks was the Threadbow Ski Resort landslide, um, which happened in the 90s, um, <clears throat> where there was a sole survivor, and I want to cover that case at some point because he is one of my idols, um, Stuart Diver. I also remember one of the major ones being two miners that we had that were stuck down a mine for two weeks in Tasmania. Everyone in Australia watched that coverage constantly. And when they came out of the mine, it was like the whole nation rejoiced. It was amazing. And I think that the children's fire always stuck with me because from when I was young, I wanted to travel. And I remember it scaring me that these young backpackers had had their lives ripped away from them, just doing what they wanted to do to travel to Australia or travel in Australia and just, you know, living their lives as best they could and living life to the full. And <clears throat> just kind of going back through the research of this has really, has really gutted me. Um, so what I'm going to do is the first episode is going to be about the case, the fire. It's a bit of a different format to what I normally do. I've written it that's quite scripted parts of it. I'm going to rely on quite a lot of quotes from survivors and from people on the scene. Um, I think I need to do that. And <clears throat> the second episode, I'm going to cover um, some survivor stories. So the first episode will be the fire and the monster that committed this act of brutality against so many innocent people, um, victims and survivors. And then the second episode, I thought we could do something that's a bit more uplifting. We talk about some survival stories, how this brought the community together in Queensland. And it is still a beautiful story of how locals stepped in to help um, these poor surviving backpackers and their families and the victims as well. Um, and I'm going to talk about the victims in the second episode as well, because I wanted to do a little bit more than what most news coverage does. I have had to dig for information on the survive, um, the victims, sorry, but I wanted to paint them as human beings um, and not just victims of this monster. So before I get into it, I want to say that for the 20th anniversary of the Childers Fire in June this year, The Guardian did an absolutely beautiful piece where they tracked down survivors of the Childers Fire, spoke to them and talked about how it still affects them to this day. And in the second episode, I will read a number of these accounts. There are also many people's stories to tell in this episode, as I said, and I cannot tell them all because there was almost 100 people, both victims and survivors in that hostel that night. And it's just impossible to get all of their stories. But as I'll go into in episode two, many are stories of heroism. And I hope that you will take that from this story and that will warm your heart because we all need to be reminded, especially me from time to time, that there are good people out there in the world. And just because one monster commits this act doesn't mean that he is everyone and everyone is someone like him. I also think it's incredibly timely to tell this story right now because I'm going to ask you in the episode to sign a petition to keep the monster who committed this act and killed 15 innocent people in jail. Australia is a joke in terms of the justice system and this year he has applied for parole, which he's entitled to do. So 
if I can ask you to do anything, I need you to go and sign that petition to keep him um, in jail permanently. He was sentenced to life and he should receive life. And the survivors and the victims' families have come together to put that petition um, <clears throat> together. So if you get anything out of this episode, please go and do that. So without further ado, let's get into the story of the Childers Palace Backpackers Hostel Fire. Quote, vile murderers, slick con men and crooked cops, welcome to Queensland's dark side. Depraved and brutal murders, gross and cynical betrayal of public trust and massive corporate skullduggery. This state has seen it all. That the quiet, well-ordered country town of Childers, 54 kilometres south of Bundaberg, should be the scene of a murderous arsonist's bitter revenge invites comparisons with a Stephen King novel. Unquote. So I wanted to start that episode with that quote from news.com.au, um, an article that was written during the investigation into the Childers Backpacker fire. It's after midnight on June 23rd, 2000, in the Childers Palace Backpackers Hostel in the rural Queensland town of Childers. Almost 100 backpackers are currently calling the hostel home, hailing from all four corners of the globe. They have found themselves in the remote outback town picking fruit, something that backpackers to Australia must do in order uh, to receive their second year visa, and they must do this for three months during their first year abroad. A small town that sits on the major thoroughfare of the Bruce Highway and deep in the Queensland hinterland, Childers is a charming town full of traditional Queenslander-style buildings, heritage-listed architecture and sitting nearby to leading Queensland wineries. The state capital of Brisbane is 310 or 193 miles south of Childers. There is only one small local hospital in Childers, but these young backpackers aren't here to live permanently. They are putting in long, hot and strenuous days, picking fruit and vegetables in the hot Queensland sun to score another year in, quote, the lucky country. The wage fruit picking is low for the effort expended, but it's something backpackers know they have to do and something that makes Australia unique to other visa-friendly countries. Here, backpackers live like a big group of friends, always together, quick to make friends and future travelling companions. Their life in Childers is work, the local pub and their home, Childers Palace Backpackers Hostel. If they are lucky, they'll snag a weekend off to head over to stunning Harvey Bay, a coastal town 45 minutes east famous for whale watching and turquoise waters and beautiful island tours. Maybe they will head 40 minutes up north to Bundaberg to try its famous rum, which is famous across Australia. The Indigenous Gurengareng people call this region home, and the National Trust town is pretty, laid back and tight-knit. In winter, the average mild, the average daily temperature is around 25 degrees Celsius. Very hot days creep into the mid to high 30s in summer, and as I write this at the beginning of spring, this week Childers expects a number of days over 27 degrees Celsius. In winter, temperatures reach um, up to 23 degrees, with overnight minimums averaging between 10 and 11 degrees Celsius. Tonight, June 23rd, 2000, 
where 90 physically worn out fruit pickers sleep deeply in two or three level bunks, either in a large ground floor dormitory or a rabbit warren of tiny upstairs rooms. Malfunctioning fire alarms have been turned off by management and instead what wakes guests is the sound of screams and glass shattering. The Childers Hostel in central Queensland has recently been refused a fire safety permit and authorities have done nothing since then to rectify the situation. Beds and bunks block doors and bars on windows ultimately seal the fate of 15 young backpackers who would be consumed by flames and smoke. It's June, winter in Australia, and tonight a thick, cold fog descends on Childers, casting an eerie atmosphere across the small Queensland country town. Rural Fire Brigade volunteer Cole Santa Catarina drives past the hostel on his way home. Through the fog, he can see that the hostel is quiet and it seems that everyone is asleep for the night, exhausted from long days fruit picking in the sun. Six minutes after Cole drives past the hostel, the home phone of Jeff Fay, one of the leading sergeants at Childers Police Station, his phone blares at home. Jeff lives two blocks from the Childers Backpackers Hostel and the phone ringing him after midnight in this sleepy town of just over 1,500 permanent residents is alarming. Six minutes at the same time after passing the quiet, ho- the quiet hostel, Cole Santa Catarina returns with his fire truck after an alarm is raised. He cannot believe what he sees. Seven News, quote, smoke billowed from beneath the veranda and windows along the side, an orange glow coming from the lower floor. Terrified backpackers stood shell-shocked in the street. Others had escaped onto the awning of a neighbouring building. The fireys hoisted a ladder and helped them to safety, unquote. Cole Santa Catarina and one crewmate who is present with him, as it is after midnight and it is very soon after the fire has appeared, um, run selflessly into the hostel, grabbing hold of survivors and guiding them out of the smoke as the entire structure of the hostel falls around them. Just seconds after entering the hostel, they are forced to flee as, quote, the combustion of the superheated upper floor generated a belt of wind that, in Santa Catarina's words, just about blew the pair out the door, unquote. Police Sergeant Jeff Fay is now on the scene, trying in the dark outside the hostel to talk to shell-shocked backpackers who are standing wrapped in sheets. He is trying to compile a list of who was staying in the hostel and who made it out but backpackers are barely able to talk as they watch the entire building go up in flames. Arson is immediately suspected due to the ferocity of the fire and British backpacker Lisa Duffy very quickly gives Jeff Fay a name that would go down in Australian history, Robert Paul Long. It doesn't take police or backpackers very long to piece together who would have started this fire. Itinerant fruit picker Robert Paul Long, who was 37 at the time of the arson, had been kicked out of the Childers Palace Backpackers Hostel two weeks prior to the fire. He was not paying the rent for his hotel hostel bed, so they had removed him from the premises. 
But despite the fact that he had been kicked out of the hostel on the night before the fire, he was seen back at the internet kiosk, which was on the ground floor of the key, of the hostel, where backpackers would stay in touch with their families, both in Australia and abroad. British survivor of the fire, Neil Griffith, would later tell investigators that he had gone downstairs and he had seen a bin on fire. A cushion was on top of the bin, which is basically connecting to a sofa, um, which was then obviously going to catch the sofa on fire. Neil Griffith quickly tried to put out the flames. He thought it was an accident. And this man sitting at the computer, at the computer kiosk, um, was sitting there looking at him and Neil yelled at him to help him. The man, who would later be identified as Robert Paul Long, replied, quote, I've got it, unquote. And he calmly took the bin and carried it out the back door and the door closed behind him. After this strange turn of events, Neil Griffith returned to his hostel bed thinking that maybe it was an accident and that the danger was over. But as he was drifting off to sleep, he was startled awake by the sounds of windows smashing and shattering as the fire consumed the hostel that he called home. Lisa, who had, Lisa Duffy, who had told the police Robert Paul Long's name very quickly after they appeared on the scene, told the trial that would be held later for him that Long had, quote, asked her to leave the back fire escape door open, unquote. But the tipping point for him was that they had not left it open for him. He wanted them to keep it open for him, even though he wasn't a guest there, because he wanted to go inside and beat up another backpacker that he had had a fight with. Now, Robert Paul Long is a lunatic and there's no other way to put it. He was a chronic liar and he regularly claimed to be dying from cancer um, and claimed to be suicidal. When Lisa Duffy told Jeff Fay, the police sergeant, the name, Jeff Fay instantly recognised it. The day before, the Federal Hotel had had a suicide note signed by Long left on the bar. A second note, not long after, had been slipped under the door of the Childers Palace Backpackers Hostel. Faye told the AAP, quote, I took possession of it, not knowing at that point in time what it was going to mean at the end of the day, unquote. Jeff Faye headed into the smouldering wreck with this name in mind, and very soon he was standing in a ground floor dormitory looking at the smouldering ashes around him. As he was standing there, part of the ceiling fell in and the body of the first known victim fell at Jeff Faye's feet. Upstairs, once they were able to get upstairs, victims of the Childers Palace Backpackers Hostel fire were found. One was on a bed, others were cowering at a window which was sadly fitted with steel bars so there was no way out. Nine of the victims of 15 were found in a single room and their exit had been blocked by a bunk bed. The age at the time reported, quote, reporters were still not permitted to examine these two rooms, but it was re revealed that the 10 victims in one room had struggled to escape through a barred window. Access was denied to the two adjoining bedrooms upstairs, where all but one of the victims perished. What is clear, however, is that the location of those rooms gave the young people sleeping inside no chance. Their only exit was located near the top of a stairwell and the centre of the inferno. 
When the alarm was raised, they would have been driven back from the doorways by flames sucked up the stairwell by air drafts from the lounge room where the fire originated, unquote. Now, I'm going to break from what I've written for a bit um, and just kind of ask you to go and look up pictures of the inside of the wreck afterwards. You can see immediately why people were not able to get out. This is an old Queenslander building that didn't have smoke detectors or fire extinguishers or um, sprinkler systems or anything like that at the time. So this kind of major stairwell, which was the main point up to the dorm rooms, was pretty much almost fell in on itself. There was no way out. People couldn't get out through a lot of the windows because they were barred. And the way that the hostel managers had put the bunk beds and things like that, it was a fire hazard. They had effectively blocked off doors trying to maximise space. <clears throat> Arson investigators were quick to determine that the fire had started at around 12.30am in a downstairs TV lounge and it very quickly became an inferno rushing up the stairwell and consuming the 100-year-old former pub. Robert Long was someone who really should never have existed and his life was honestly a waste, a waste of breath and he still is to this day. He was born in 1962 in the town of Wollongong in New South Wales and at the time of the fire he was 38 years old. As a youth he was convicted of stealing women's clothes from nearby clothes lines and he was also sentenced in his youth to four years in prison for burglary and other charges um, including an assault on his then de facto girlfriend. That was in 1994. He got four years in prison for um, abducting his child from his former lover's home and assaulting her. But as this is Australia and our parole system is a joke, he was paroled not long after in January 1997. His partner had claimed that Robert Long had tried to burn her to death. So clearly he was obsessed with arson and fire. Um, He had also tried to burn to death their daughter and her two other children from a previous relationship um, in a Darwin caravan park where they were living in 1997. However, the state police, which is the Northern Territory Police in that area, had not charged him despite this. News.com.au described Long as follows, quote, what emerged at and after the trial was that Long was a seriously disturbed loner who invented stories of terrible personal tragedies to seek attention and sympathy. He would drift around Australia working in low-paid jobs and for a while his stories were believed and he was accepted. He claimed he was dying of lung cancer. His wife and children had died in fires or a road accident, his niece had died of leukaemia, and his girlfriend had just committed suicide, unquote. So this guy is clearly a pathological liar, um, a loner, as he's often described, um, and an arsonist, and the signs were all there for many years before, so we should be looking at the parole system. Robert Long's face not long after he was fingered as the main suspect in the Childers Backpacker Hostel fire, his name was plastered across Australian televisions and newspapers. I still remember this so well. And a massive manhunt ensued for this mass murderer. 
There were at least six sightings of him in the area and the region around Childers, but in the end, as it often is, and that's why I love them, it was a police dog that actually found him. This brilliant police dog picked up this monster scent on the old Bruce Highway, um, I believe about 30, I think about 30 kilometres outside of Childers. He had been on the run on foot um, for that amount of time. <clears throat> now, the police and the police dogs cornered Robert Paul Long on the banks of the Burham River and a basically an assault by him and a interaction with the police ensued. They wrestled with Long and he was attacking the police dog with a knife. Don't worry, from what I can find, the dog was fine. Um, I checked that. They're very amazing, tough dogs. Um, it was slashed with a knife and <clears throat> an officer was stabbed in the jaw as Long was carrying a knife on him. Another officer who should have received a medal um, pulled his gun on this monster and hit him in the arm, which is what you should do. Let's not kill them. Let's make them suffer in prison forever. Um, <clears throat> Long was left with an injured ear from this tussle. And as he was sitting there and he had been shot in the arm, his hypochondria and self-obsession continued. He said to them, quote, I'm dying anyway, I started the fire, unquote. The dying anyway wasn't referring to the shot in his arm, it was referring to the fact that he was still bunging on that he had cancer, terminal cancer. <laughs> so yeah. Unfortunately, um, Robert Paul Long when this went to trial, and I will get into the victims in the second episode, these are going to be kind of shorter episodes than normal. What happened, which often happens in cases of mass murders, is that he was only tried for two of the deaths of 15. Um, he received a life sentence with a minimum parole period of 20 years, and he was charged for the murders of Perth twins Stacey and Kelly Slark. They were identical twins. I'll put up a picture of them, and their parents lost their twin girls, who were only 19 at the time, to this absolute monster. Unfortunately, they weren't able to try him for the rest of the murders because the Queensland justice system, and I don't agree with it, but they're the experts, they thought that it would make the trial too confusing, which I found often happens in these cases. They generally try them for two hard-hitting ones. His trial lasted three weeks in 2002 and survivors travelled across the world for the trial. They were not going to let this bastard win. The prosecutor referred to Robert Paul Long as, quote, a small-minded and cowardly man whose actions had an extraordinary effect on the lives and victims and families of his victims, unquote. He also described Long as, quote, an attention-seeking oddball with a boiling hatred of the young travellers with whom, with whom he briefly shared lodgings, unquote. And I think right there in that quote, the prosecutor nails what is at the heart of this case. Um, Robert Paul Long was 38 years old. He was an oddball. He was living in youth hostels. He had no stable partner, no relationship with his children. He didn't get along with anyone. He was a weirdo. And every day in this hostel before he gets kicked out, he's looking at these young backpackers who have travelled overseas or from other parts of Australia, all making friends and getting along and going out to the pub for drinks. And this hatred of being an incel, essentially, is just brewing and brewing and brewing. 
when the judge ruled, um, when the jury found Robert Paul Long guilty um, unanimously, the judge in his verdict called him, quote, callous and cruel. Um, and he said that it was the worst case of arson in Queensland history, something that continues to this day. The judge said, quote, I'm happy to concede you had no intent to kill, but death was such an inevitability in circumstances that to light those fires displays callousness and cruelty that is hard to imagine, unquote. So essentially in his ruling, the judge said that he had no intent to kill, but it was clear they were going to die. So he really looked at it like it was a knee-jerk reaction to set fire to the place, but this bastard should have known that it was going to kill everyone. And that's why he got the sentence he got. Now, <clears throat> he was never charged for the other 13 lives he took because prosecutors thought that it would have needlessly complicated legal proceedings and it ultimately wouldn't have changed his sentence. And I'm not sure when we get into the current parole appeal that he's going for, I don't think that's true anymore. I think that they should go back and try him for the other 13 murders right now, 20 years later, so that this piece of shit stays in prison because he's currently up for parole. And in Australia, we have a number of people who, I'm going back to my legal studies days when I did it in school, but <clears throat> essentially there's a number of people who pose such a threat to the community that the Governor General marks their case never to be released. It is Martin Bryans, who I will cover at some point, who is the murderer in the biggest mass murder in Australian history that changed the course of Australia um, and changed our gun laws forever. Um, another one is Julian Knight, I believe, who was a mass murderer who committed a massacre in my city of Melbourne. Um, <clears throat> even, I don't believe, Ivan Milat got never to be released. So it has to be someone who was a serious threat to the community and to me, Robert Paul Long poses a serious threat to the community. So the judge in his case warned the authorities that in 20 years, which is right now, to take great care in releasing him. And I'm bringing that up because right now that is where we're at. It has been 20 years. It does not feel like it. I remember this being on the news. I was just starting high school um, and I think they need to heed that warning and the parole officers need to pull their heads out of their asses. <clears throat> so during his trial, despite the fact that he was clearly guilty, he went on the run and when they caught him, he said he lit the fire. He actually denied murdering and committing the arson. And this is despite what I told you about the eyewitness seeing him lighting a fire earlier in the night. But the jury was not having it and he was found guilty unanimously. At the time, the mayor of the town of Childers, Bill Trevor, said, quote, justice has been served. It is a result for the parents. Is it, a, it is a result for the survivors. It won't bring back those lovely young kids, but what it will bring is some peace of mind to those families around the world and across Australia who have waited for this moment. I don't know if I am relieved, but I think families around the world will wake up to the news that someone will pay for the misery they have been through, unquote. And I just wanted to bring that quote up because um, in June, 20 years later, they woke up to the news that he had been allowed to apply for parole 
that's currently pending because obviously COVID is banking up, you know, the court system um, and things like that and parliament. So I will keep you posted on what happens um, with that. So after the murders of these innocent young people who were at the prime of their lives, having fun and travelling the world, obviously the survivors um, who were left standing at the front as the fire just consumed this hostel and all of their belongings were gone, their passports were gone, their clothes were gone and 15 of their friends were gone. The people of the town of Childers were incredible. I think that if you can give a town a medal, the people of Childers should get the first one in Australia. It makes me want to cry. Um, They came together to support, feed and clothe these devastated backpackers who were completely shook to their core and had lost everything. One Dutch survivor actually said that there was a number of Dutch people who lived in the region and because Dutch, the Dutch survivors, a lot of them didn't speak very good English, a lot of Dutch locals and people who spoke other languages made their way to Childers to translate for these people and to make them feel more comfortable. Grief counsellors and ministers arrived in droves. Donna Duncan, who along with other community organisations, she is a local who ran a 24-hour kitchen for 11 straight days. She worked over 14 hours a day and this was to provide meals for the survivors. Bear in mind, they're feeding about 70 kids, um, young people who have no belongings anymore, no way to communicate back home, um, no passports, no way to leave, no identification, no clothes, no medications. Um, They gave meals to survivors, um, people who were working security, police, the SES, firemen and women, um, and the consular officials who came to Childers to work um, with these international backpackers and she's an incredible woman. The local St Vincent de Paul um, donated tons of clothing to these people, um, you know, to get them back on their feet. Pharmacies in the region immediately coordinated to provide those who were taking medications that were lost in the fire um, to get them those medications immediately. Nothing was left behind. Local libraries immediately opened their doors and provided free internet and phones to contact back home and let their parents know they were safe as this news made worldwide news when this happened. And for quite a while, Survivor Victims and survivors' families didn't know for a number of days if their children were still alive. Residents who just lived in shelters, who, you know, had nothing to do with any organisations or anything, opened their doors for these survivors, um, these cops, these poor young backpackers to have hot showers and have company and come around for dinner. And to this day, a number of the people in Childers, um, they still have memorials for these people and um, they still keep in touch with the survivors. Local police and um, grief counsellors immediately, you know, came into Childers from all across the region to provide support. And I'm happy to say that local council workers and police and other officials working in Childers, basically in the recovery and the support of the survivors and recovery of the victims, would not take overtime pay despite sometimes working days at a time with no sleep. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to finish this episode and release the next one in a day or two. I want to 
separate this monster Robert Paul Long from the victims and their stories. Um, with the victims and their stories, the issue is our Australian media only gave you kind of snippets and it's quite hard to find information on each person because there was 15 of them. So I've had to kind of individually search each person to get their story and generally they made the news in their home country. But because there were so many, there were 70 survivors who were all telling their story and had to be coordinated and come to Robert Paul Long's trial and the later inquest, it was hard to for the Australian media at the time to tell the stories of all these people. So in the next episode, I'm going to go through um, the 15 victims and I'm also going to tell a number of stories from the survivors of the Childers Backpackers Hostel. A lot of them are heroic stories, how they were saved by other people um, in the hostel. And yeah, I just wanted to have a separate episode for the victims so they don't have to share an episode with this complete monster. Now, if you listen to this episode before I wrap up, and I'm going to talk about this in the second episode, could you please search on change.org the Childers Backpacker Fire Petition? This is a petition that more than 20,000 people have signed so far because this monster has applied for parole, which he's entitled to do because Australia is a joke and no one cares about rapists and murderers. They generally put people away who have done, you know, not worn a mask or, you know, that's what they're doing at the moment. These are the predators you do not want in your community. And this was set up by a survivor who I will get into in the second episode. So if you have the time to do that now, before you forget, please go there. I will put up the details on the episode page for this website. Um, please go and sign it. I have just signed it. Um, I'm going to write a letter um, <clears throat> to I don't know who yet, but um, I'm going to write up a template for you guys to write because I do not want this piece of shit in my community. And if you're in Australia, I do not want him living in your community if he gets out. Um, so stay tuned for the next episode, probably tomorrow. And yeah, thanks so much.